week three of our series called The Problem of God. And if you haven't been here the past two weeks, I would encourage you go back, listen to our podcast, as John and Zach, they gave really great foundations for what we believe and why we believe it. So you can go, you can find the podcast on the podcast app on Apple and all you other people. I honestly don't know where you get your podcast. So, you know, go find it. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm going to move back a little bit. There we go. So we're on week three, and we're going to talk about the Bible. And we're asking the question, can the Bible actually be trusted? And for some of you in this room tonight, you're like, well, yeah, duh, the Bible's the word of God. I know what I would agree with you, but if someone were to ask you, okay, why is the Bible the word of God? How do you know that? Do you actually have an answer? Do you actually know what you would say to them? Others of you, you might have walked in here tonight, and maybe you grew up with the Bible. But as you grew older, you put it back in the box with all of your childhood books because you've kind of just come to realize that maybe it's just made-up stories. Maybe others of you think that it's just a book of morals and it's telling us kind of a good way to live but nothing else. Well, others of you maybe grew up with a tradition where you didn't read the Bible at all or maybe you had a different religious text. And I just want to say that just like Roberta said, you don't have to believe exactly what we believe to belong here. You belong first. But as a community, we want to grow together and we want to learn and we want to dig in and see, is, can this book actually be trusted? Because I want to suggest some key reasons tonight why I think this book can be trusted, both textually, historically, why it's not just a book full of controversial subjects, why it's not outdated, but that actually understanding that this book can be trusted, it changes everything. But why does it change everything? You see, if the Bible is not true, then everything that we're doing here is a waste of time. In fact, all of Christianity is a waste of time because you don't have Christianity without this book. There's no point to worshiping. There's no point to gathering here together. There's no point to trying to live our lives like Jesus or be good people if this book is not true. But if this book is just good morals, then I think we're entirely missing the point. Because as Zach talked a little bit about last week, to have morals, you have to have a lawgiver. So you can't disassociate morals from God. And if this book is just outdated, then how do we trust anything about God if God is saying that he's timeless, but his book is outdated? But if the Bible is true, if it's actually the word of God as it's claiming to be, then nothing should get in our way from reading it and studying it and allowing it to actually transform our lives. Because the more that I've digged into this book and the more that I've studied about this book and, and looked into it, the more I've begun to realize there's no middle ground here. If it's not to be trusted, there's no point to reading it. But if it is to be trusted, then we should be treating it as if it's our lifeline. So let's start at the basics. What does the Bible, what is the Bible? You see, the Bible, it's not just one book like we would think it is. It's actually 66 books. And it's split into two sections. There's the Old Testament, which is um, everything that happened before Jesus' life. And then there's the New Testament, which is talking about Jesus' life and the early church. These 66 books, they were written 1,600 years apart by 40 different authors in three languages and across three different continents. And as we start off this trial of the Bible, testing whether it can be trusted or not, I want to look into it and see what does the Bible claim to be. And this is in no way evidence for the Bible. You can't use the Bible to prove that it's true, but it is telling us what does it believe itself to be, and it's giving us a testimony 
of itself. So first of all, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Moving on, we're going to 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. It says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy had never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Then Hebrews 4, uh, 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So to sum it up, the Bible is saying, that it is the very words of God. It's God breathed and God gave his words to people through his spirit. And that this book is like a double-edged sword, which means that it's like the, our greatest weapon and it is alive and it is active today. Now I do want to warn you that there's been so much research on this topic and the theologians and historians, both Christian and non-Christian, have looked at all these different arguments and we could go on for days looking at what they have said studied what they have come up with, but since we only have 30 minutes, I'm just going to give a few of the answers to some of the greatest arguments against the Bible. So if you have a pen and paper, I encourage you to take notes, take them on your phone, otherwise you're not going to actually remember any of this. And also if you're going to accrue after, you're going to want to remember some things to talk about. So take notes, and we'll go right into the first argument, and that is, wouldn't the Bible have changed if it was actually written thousands and thousands of years ago. So critics will often use the illustration of the game of telephone. You know, it's the game where one person says something to another person and it goes down the line and then at the end it comes out different. But really when you think of it, it actually only comes out different because everyone lies because they want to make it funny or whatever. But anyways, so they say that it's like the game of telephone. But this argument, it has the assumption that we have just one game of telephone going. Or in this case, we have one ancient manuscript going. So critics are assuming that we had one manuscript that was passed on from generation to generation and recopied, and that is where we got, get the Bible today. But what they fail to realize is that we actually have 25,000 manuscripts of various books of the Bible from different times, different places, and in different languages. And so instead of like one game of telephone going, it's actually like having a hundred games of telephone going. So you have a hundred people in a line and they're all given the exact same message. And it goes down the line and at the end of the line you hear what message the end of the person got. And if 99 of those people got all the same message, but one person had a different message, then you could assume, okay, if that one person had the wrong message from everyone else, then what the 99 people said is probably accurate. And not only that, you can then go back and you can see, okay, that one person who got it wrong, we can go back down the line and we can see where in history did they get it wrong? What did they get wrong? Was it a letter that they changed? Was it a word that they changed? Did something get misinterpreted somehow? And they can go back and they can actually see um, what went wrong and how to fix it. And at this point, critics might say, okay, great. So we have 25,000 manuscripts uh, from the Bible, awesome. They all seem to align, great. 
But weren't the manuscripts that we have today written hundreds of years after the originals had been written? And that's a fair argument, but the problem with this is that no one asks this argument of other ancient writings. No one is asking whether Plato or Aristotle's writings are correct based off of this. So let's, pu let's put them to the test. Plato, for example, has seven ancient manuscripts known to us today that were written 1,200 years after the originals would have been written. Historians and archaeologists have found 10 ancient manuscripts from Aristotle's writings, the earliest of which was written 1,400 years after Aristotle's life. The highest number of manuscripts that any ancient text has besides the Bible is Homer with 643 manuscripts, dated as early as 500 years after his life. But then we look at the Bible and we see that we have 25,000 manuscripts, many dated less than 100 years after they were written. In fact, we have a piece of the Gospel of John in the New Testament, and it's believed to have been dated only 29 years after the Gospel would have actually been written. So historians across the board, they believe that the Bible is actually the most textually accurate book in the entire ancient world. But the next objective is that the Bible can't be historically accurate. So I, although the Bible could be considered textually accurate by historians, the stories were probably just made up. But in order to answer this, we need to look at archaeology and see what it shows about ancient cities and people and events. So for example, for centuries, anytime before the 20th century, people actually believed that the book of Joshua was false. And they believed this because as far as anyone could tell, there was no ancient city called Jericho. And so if you remember maybe from VeggieTales or re actually reading the Bible, um, the book of Jericho, <laughs> read the Bible first, but VeggieTales is great. Um, so the book of J Joshua tells about the story of Jericho, right? And so Joshua goes and he's um, leading the Israelite army to take down Jericho, and God says, okay, go and walk around the walls, and they will fall down, not by men's strength, but by God's strength. And if you remember VeggieTales, you remember the song? Keep walking, but you won't knock down a wall. I've had stuck in my head all day. Anyways, so they burned down the walls. And so historians were like, that can't have actually happened because there's no ancient city called Jericho. But then in the early 1900s, they actually found the ruins of the walls of Jericho. And they believed that it was from earthquake that would have caused the walls to collapse. But then digging further, they found that the stones of the walls, they were actually blackened as if they were burned, exactly aligning which, with what scripture has been telling us. And then what they recently found was that there's one piece of the wall that still remains, one section. And when we go back into scripture, we actually read about this woman named Rahab. And Rahab, she was living in Jericho amongst these terrible people, but she was incredibly faithful to God. And so God told Rahab that he would save her life, even though the walls were going to be falling and the city was going to be destroyed. And her house was actually against one of the walls, so it is believed that the wall that is still standing is where Rahab actually lived. And then, the, throughout the 20th century, people were incredibly concerned about King David. Because as far as they knew, there was no such thing as King David or the house of David in ancient history. But then in 1993, archaeologists found a stone with an inscription on it. And what they found that this stone said was that it referenced the house of David. And it tells the story that we find in 2 Kings 
where the king of Israel and the king of Judah, both from the house of David, were killed on the same day by the king of Damascus. So all throughout the Bible, we're finding how these stories are actually aligning with archaeology and are actually aligning with secular history. And sometimes we're finding that is that we can't just write something off because we don't know it from a historical viewpoint, but that sometimes modern technology actually just needs to play catch up to reveal more of the ancient world to us. So the second thing that we can see from to argue for historical accuracy is outside sources. And just to name one is Josephus, who is a first century Roman Jewish scholar. And he actually wrote about Jesus, but he wrote about him in a way that was mocking Christianity and was trying to point people against Jesus. So scholars actually, they call this a hostile source. And they say that this is the most accurate source you could have. Because if the hostile source says anything that is in line with their opponent, then that one thing must be true. So in this case, the Bible is saying that there is this man named Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God. And Josephus, he's saying, yes, there's this man named Jesus, and he claimed to be the Son of God. So you know that in history, there must have been at least a man named Jesus, and at least he himself was claiming that he was God's Son. So let's now move on to the next objective. Isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Critics would say that there are 700 contradictions in the Bible. And we'll find, while well, studying the Bible, you'll find like, yeah, there actually are a lot of areas with some tough questions that arise um, from texts and things that just seem to contradict each other. But I want to give you a different perspective of this. So I have two sisters, Amy and Carly, they're here tonight. Um, and if you were to, and, or we all have experienced the same um, very memorable moment in our family history. So this moment, we call it um, the moment of the candle of truth. So it was where we were all having this huge fight, my whole family, I don't know, remember what we were fighting about, but we were having this huge fight, and so my dad, being the peacekeeper of the family, he sat us all down and he put this candle in the middle of the table and he said, that's the candle of truth, and we all had to talk out what was going on, and blah, 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 so all that. But if you were to ask us to tell you the story of the candle of truth, we're all going to tell it based off of our own experience, but also our own personality. So if you were to ask Amy about this candle of truth, she would tell it on emotional terms. She would tell you what she felt during the time. She would tell you what others felt during the time. She would tell you about the general emotional atmosphere of the moment. But if you were to ask Carly about this moment, she would probably tell it from a witty, kind of humorous standpoint. She would tell you the funniness of it all and how ridiculous it all was, and she would make you laugh throughout the entire story. And if you were to ask me about this, I would not skip through any of that, or I would skip through all of that. I would get right to the point. I would just give you the details. This is what happened. This was who was here. This is how it ended. Done. Right to the point. Now take this perspective and put it into 66 books with 40 authors. The contradictions are less about errors, and they're more about the stories being told from different perspectives, from different people, and to different audiences. You see, with reading the Bible, there is an element of faith that needs to come with it. But it doesn't mean that we just leave our minds at the door and that we don't actually have to engage with it. And we don't have to ask these tough questions. I challenge you, when there is a tension in the Bible, go and study it. Look into it. Look for those contradictions and see what you can come up with. Um, look for resources, looking at culture and context and language. 
And we'll find that there's no contradiction in the Bible that's big enough to invalidate the Bible's reliability and the Bible's message. So if contradictions don't invalidate the Bible, the next objective is, isn't the Bible outdated? And this is actually my favorite question, kind of, because um, I love studying this stuff. But the skeptics will say that since the newest book of the Bible is almost 2,000 years old, doesn't it mean that that doesn't apply to us today? And with this question, we have to be so careful because the Bible was written to a specific culture in a specific place um, at a specific time. And of course, the Bible is going to be telling stories that talk about things that we don't experience today. And it's going to emphasize things that don't apply to us today or give us laws that we obviously don't follow today. So laws like don't wear wool or um, you're not allowed to eat pork. Or men, if you are clean shaven, you'd be like excommunicate or something. So I don't know what you'd do if you actually couldn't grow a beard because you're in a lot of trouble there. But we need to know how to read the Bible through a cultural lens because we don't get to pick and choose what's a timeless truth and what's a temporary taboo. That's for scripture to tell us. So I want to give you some questions that you can ask. You can go to different areas of the Bible, things like that talk about war or um, polygamy or slavery or sexism. Some of these topics that just seem so outdated, go to them and put them through the filter of these questions. Number one, what is the context of this passage? And are you trying to impose your culture on another. You see, there's a difference between cultural beliefs and absolute truths. And sometimes I think what we try to do is we take our cultural beliefs and we try to put that on a different cultural belief and we say that one is better than the other. But that's not what this is about. This is about asking what was their cultural belief and from that, what is the absolute truth? Number two, is the passage agreeing with what happened or is it simply telling how it happened? A lot of the times in the Bible, we'll look at a story and we can be like, how, did, how would God agree with that? How would he allow that to happen? But see, there's a difference between God agreeing with it and God just telling this is how it happened in history. Number three, what do other books of the Bible say about the same issue? This is called systematic theology, where you take a topic of the Bible and you look at what the entire Bible is saying about it and getting references from all the different books. And last of all, look at the New Testament. How did Jesus live and what did he teach? If we're supposed to be basing our lives off of Jesus, we need to be asking this question, how did he live and what did he say about these commands in the Old Testament that just don't seem to be making any sense? See, asking these questions, it will take us beyond just reading the Bible at surface level and assuming that we understand what's going on. It will actually just look at what is God trying to say here? So we can see that the Bible is textually sound that's historically accurate. It isn't just full of contradictions and it's not outdated, but was it actually written by God? If we know that the Bible was written by 40 authors, couldn't we just say that the Bible was just written by men and just leave it at that? Besides the Bible itself claiming to be the word of God, how do we actually know? And I think there's two explanations to this. The first that I see is prophecy. All throughout the Bible, there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that are spoken that later came true in history. And some of the greatest prophecies that we see are of Jesus, and there's almost 100 prophecies written in the Old Testament that then came true in the New Testament. But critics, they'll take this and they'll say, okay, but couldn't that have happened? But then someone went and wrote about it after, pretending like it was a prophecy. But you see, 
the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it shattered this theory in 1947 when they found it, the entire book of Isaiah, which is, um, has a lot of the prophecies about Jesus' life, and they dated it to 120 B.C. This is 120 years before Jesus was even born that it is believed that this manuscript had been written. So it's highly probable that... Um, that, the, uh, that Isaiah was actually writing about a future that he had no idea about. It must have been through God. And not only does the Bible prophesy about events that would take place, but there's no other book in history that tells me more about my own past, my own present, and my own future than the Bible does. And the second explanation for the Bible being the word of God is the unity between the books. It's actually incredible how the Bible could be written 600 years apart by 40 different authors, all of different backgrounds. There was um, prophets, there was kings, there was doctors, there was a fisherman, shepherd, a tax collector. There was men of great wealth, some of none, men of great education, some of little. And there was, they were all writing with different purposes. Some were to write history, others were to write poetry, some were to write letters, others to write prophecy, we even have apocalyptic literature in the New Testament. And yet throughout all of these incredible stories and topics and issues being addressed, the Bible never contradicts itself. And not only does it not contradict itself, but every book talks about Jesus. And I think sometimes we get confused and we can be looking at this book and it's all of this history of God's people. And then all of a sudden, in the New Testament, there's this man named Jesus. But you see, that's not just random. Jesus is on every single page of this book. And you see, this book, it's not meant to just be for some good doctrine. It's not meant to be your new creative tattoo idea. It's not meant for a catchy Twitter phrase. The point of this book is to direct us to Jesus. But to get to know him... We need to be reading this book not like a little devotional, not just out of obligation, but to actually just get to know the very one who wrote it. And we'll see that every page and every chapter and every book is shouting his name. For in Genesis, he's the creator and our promised savior. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest that would intercede for his people. In Numbers, he's the fire by night and the clouds by day. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet speaking to Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of the army. In Judges, he's the sword of the Lord. In Ruth, he's the perfect groom. In First and Second Samuel, he's the priest. In First and Second Kings, he's the whirlwind of power. In First and Second Chronicles, he's the glory of God. In Ezra, he's a faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's a rebuilder of the broken. In Esther, he's a protector of his people. In Job, he's a mediator between God and humanity. In Psalms, he's the good shepherd. And in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's the wise father. In Song of Songs, he's the author of love. And in Isaiah, he's the light of the world. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's a promised righteous king. And in Ezekiel, he's the wind coming from the four corners of the earth that would bring life to dry bones. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's the loving and affectionate husband. In Joel, he's the promised salvation. In Amos, Obadiah, Micah, 
or Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephani, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. He's the last prophet, voice of the prophet who prepared the redemptive work that began at creation. And then there's Matthew. It talks about the, Jesus as the Messiah. And Mark, Jesus is the healer. And Luke, he's the son of man. And John, he's the word made flesh. And Acts, he's the giver of the power of the spirit at Pentecost. In Romans, he's the fulfillment of the law. In 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and 1st and 2nd Timothy, he's the perfect sacrifice so that we might be free. In Titus and Philemon, he's the true friend. In Hebrews, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude, he's the power of love. And in Revelations, he's the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Guys, does anyone want to get to know this Jesus? Yeah. To get to know this Jesus, all we have to do is open up scripture. And we're going to find that when we read it and when we engage with it and when we actually dig deep and allow it to transform our lives, it's going to completely change us. But I don't know if we truly understand as a culture the power of this book. Sure, it might be historically and textually accurate. Sure, it might not hold contradictions. Sure, it might be for today. But do we actually understand that this book is timeless? Isaiah says that the grass will wither and the flowers will fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This book is unshakable, and when we speak it out loud, chains are broken, and we are set free from everything that's holding us back from being who God wants us to be. Maybe you walked in here today feeling like you're worthless and like you'll never be enough. Scripture says that you are God's unique creation, fearfully and wonderfully made. Or maybe you walked in here today and you're feeling heartbroken. Well, Scripture says that God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Or maybe you walked in here today and you're overcome by, by shame of things that you did in the past, or maybe even things that you did yesterday. Well, Scripture says that God's grace is sufficient for you, and that his grace and his mercy, they follow you. Or maybe you walked in here today feeling overcome by anxiety, and you woke up this morning not even knowing if you wanted to face another day. Scripture says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he's actually left his peace as a legacy for you. Or maybe you walked in here today and you're confused and uncertain about your faith. Scripture says that God loves to give wisdom and understanding to those who ask for it. See, God's word, it is our greatest weapon. And what, it's what alone has the power to silence the enemy. So in order to fight, we need to know that what scripture says. And we need to have our hearts actually anchored to it. And then we can use it as our weapon against insecurities against shame, and against lies. And maybe you walked in here today and you actually don't know this God that we're talking about. Maybe you've never actually, you never started a relationship with him, and I want to invite you today. I want to invite you to get to know this Jesus. Because he's the Jesus that every single battle we face, he gives us the tools and he helps fight with us. Um, there's 
a piece of scripture you might have all heard if you were around the church for any amount of time. It's John 3.16. And you might be like, oh, great, John 3.16 again. I memorized that when I was two. Um, I actually think it's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him will not die, but will live forever. That's all it takes to have a relationship with him. The first step is just believe. Believe that he loves you. Believe that he sent his son to die for you and that his son then rose again because he's the son of God. So I want to invite you all to just close your eyes for a moment. We're just all going to have a moment between us and our creator. And if you haven't accepted Jesus before, I want to invite you tonight to take the stand to decide that you're not going to do this life on your own any longer, but that you are going to live it knowing that there's a God who created you, a God who loves you, and a God that is fighting for you. So if you believe this in your heart and you want to make the declaration today, if you want to just raise your hand, and this isn't to show anyone, everyone's eyes are closed, but all it is is to be an outward expression of what is going on inside your own heart right now. And as a community, I want to invite us all to just say this prayer together. And maybe this is your first time saying this prayer. That's okay. We're all saying it together. And you can all just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for your amazing love. I turn away from my sins and ask for your forgiveness. Please come into my life and give me a fresh start. Help me live my life for you from this day forward. Amen. Can we celebrate anyone who made that decision tonight? Welcome to the family. And I want to invite you all to stand and we're going to continue to worship together.